Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? We've got these ethical funds and we've got these other funds that have ethical products and no one is taking a gender lens into consideration. So they're not investing in tobacco, they're not investing in guns and armaments and fossil fuels, but why are we still investing in companies that are prohibiting women into senior levels of leadership? Christina Hobbs is the CEO and co-founder of Verve, Australia's first ethical investing community for women by women, including women's focused super fund Verve Super and ethical investing platform Verve Money. Christina is an experienced board director in the super industry and a published author on gender equality. She is passionate about ethical investment, impact investment and ensuring that capital is used to help build a better world. Prior to founding Verve, she worked for a decade with the UN as a humanitarian financial inclusion expert. Her role included things like designing women-focused microfinance agricultural projects in Gaza, establishing mobile banking blockchain technology to deliver assistance in conflict zones, and leading a 1 billion euro program to register 1.3 million Syrians in Turkey with the social security and banking systems to receive EU humanitarian aid. This is one of the largest aid projects ever. Some phenomenal projects of impact that I'm really looking forward to learning more about from Christina today. It wasn't until this time working in conflict-affected areas like Syria and Iraq that Christina thought about superannuation and its impact. She found that her own super was invested in weapons that had killed innocent civilians, which just seems so unbelievable. It was here that she decided that things needed to change and Verve Money was born. Christina has led an interesting career journey and I'm eager to find out more about this amazing woman and what she feels we should be talking more about. Christina Hobbs, welcome to the One Question Podcast. It's so fabulous to have you here. Thanks for having me on. Can't wait to uh, get stuck in. You are known as one serious lady that has so much interesting conversations about money. So I'm intrigued about what you want to talk about today. So if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Well, it is on the money theme and it's about the word wealth and what the word wealth really means. One of the reasons I think this is a fabulous conversation to have is that Since founding Verve and speaking to thousands of women about money, me and my colleagues began to realise over time that the word wealth or the concept of wealth building can almost be a bit of a dirty word for some women. And so for us, taking it back to its original meaning and having those conversations has been really powerful in many of our members' lives. Oh, I like that, a little reframing of that word. And I would agree a lot of people when they talk about wealth or money, I mean, people are uncomfortable talking about money, period, but I surround myself now with lots of businesswomen. So there's lots of more conversation of money than when I had when I was a kid, when my mum said, yeah, you never talk about money. I'd love that notion about wealth. So tell me when you bring it back to the um, core of what wealth means, what does that look like? Yeah, so the actual dictionary meaning, which I think has diverted a bit, um, probably in recent decades from what we think of it today, but 
it actually just means having an abundance of what you value in your life. And I think the the concept of this and why I want more people to be having this conversation is really from from two angles. And and one is about the first one, which I think is really important, of course, which we've been told over and over again, of course, is that that money doesn't buy us true wealth. So if we're if we're you know losing the things that we really care about, like time with our families or or our health, um, in the pursuit of making money, we're actually becoming less wealthy. But I also think more interestingly is that, and the conversations I love having with women is around, well, what does wealth actually look like and what does a really wealthy life look like to you and the incredible light bulbs that can go off in people's minds when they realise that actually they've got enough resources to, to build a super wealthy life for them, I think can be really, really incredible. Such a beautiful notion, just, you know, taking the money and financial side out of that terminology about having a wealthy life. And yeah, I imagine when you're always talking, you know, 100% of people when you talk about wealth would always just equate it to money, right? So I've got two questions. One, when you ask people that question, what are the things that they come up with, you know, in terms of what they'd say? And then the light bulb moments, you know, how do they kind of reframe that? Or do you help them to sort of, you know, understand that notion about things that they can do a little bit differently? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, because we're not often asked that. And we often, we, we might, you know, sometimes think down to a goal level. So what are our financial goals? Or, or what are we aiming for? But that real question of what do we really value, I think, is is where the nuggets are. And I think what's really incredible is that you know, I've probably seen maybe a thousand women answer this question over the last few years. And the answers are always remarkably similar at all ages. And it's more time with loved ones, whether it's family, friends, pets. It's time to be creative and pursue things that, that people find creative and it's health. And they're the three, you know, I think beyond once your basic needs are met. So obviously, you know, safety, security, having a home, if people can own something that they can live in and feel safe in and feel like it's theirs and have a sense of ownership over it, what that home looks like can even be very different to, to what people may have imagined. And I think it's it's really thinking about what a life would look like if you had more of these things in it that I think can then inspire people to, to go and do the hard work on their finances in order to start working towards it. Yeah. And I think, have you seen a real change with this in the last few years? I mean, you've been running, you've been the CEO of Verve Super for five years or so now, is that right? Or, and obviously the change that's happened in the world in the last couple of years has made people, you know, more aware, I guess, of bringing more joy into their lives or probably a little bit more open to changing their life, you know, less work, more more play or whatever. And that's, you know, the the term that you said then about one of the second things that people really want is about that creativity in their life. And, you know, we've seen a massive change in that in the last couple of years. Have you noticed that in your kind of, you know, observation of these kind of questions over the last few years? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think uh, people of different generations, particularly women of generations who we work with, uh, can be really different in, I guess, their their challenges and opportunities to actually get to the to the heart of that and to have that belief that they can live a really wealthy life. So um, with younger people, there's there's tends to be a bit more fear about financial futures, um, you know, with home ownership, the prices where it's at, um, with, you know, cost of living really high. Often, you know, younger people are less um, established in their careers, so there's still more fear around that. Um, but I think looking at younger people, what is really inspiring is they have a much better sense. So I think there's this 
overall kind of understanding amongst a lot of younger people that, you know, older people have sort of fucked up the world a bit and um, that way of living isn't going to bring anyone joy and and there is a greater focus on on living sustainably and locally locally and um, you know really getting down to what what does bring happiness and then I think there's kind of this lost um, I'd sort of call it people my age the sort of 30s and 40s where you're just a bit lost with the the day-to-days of um, running families and and trying to run careers at the same time and um, and and often we sort of start to neglect um, our financial lives or we outsource that to our our partners because we just don't have time. But really re-engaging it at this age and thinking, what do we want those future years to look like is really powerful. Um, and then some of the most profound changes I've probably had have been amongst some of the older women in our community. So most of our community between the ages are sort of late 20s and, and sort of mid-40s. But there was one woman I, I met a few months ago who was in her, her 60s and just the classic, had worked her whole life, single mom, has a disability um, and has no, no savings. Um, just very classic story of um, which so many women are impacted by living in government housing. Actually, I've got to say that's just sad, though, to hear you say that's a classic story. That's a classic, like yeah. You know, that, yeah, that's horrendous. And, and you know, that, that particular woman was lucky she was in government housing because, as we know, that's the fastest-growing ho- cohort of homeless Australians. But, you know, sitting down even with somebody who um, had very small financial assets but still some time to, to build um, finances and was definitely a very entrepreneurial individual and discussing with her, well, what are the things that bring value? And, again, it was family, friends, community, having pets around and thinking through like, okay, well, what could some different housing options look like that could be affordable? What could you do to make those happen? Um, and really this woman kind of after interaction just going on this whole exploratory journey about um you know, uh, pooling with with other women to um, sublease land until the end of their lives to build a communal housing facility for themselves and um, doing that in a financially viable way. Um, And, you know, really this one individual now trying to create a model that can be replicable for other other women. So um, I think think just going back to that. Yeah, and then not only that, but now in her 60s, you know, going on the journey to try to find the finances and create the financial structures to do that, um, you know, incredible um, just by sort of really honing in on, on what is that value and, and how can you really try to make that that possible. Um, so, yeah, definitely I've seen some really inspiring things coming out of people that have answered that question in a really honest way. Yeah, and I want to try to dig, I guess, you're you're um, a really fascinating human. I think people kind of uh, laugh or challenge me when they ask me what do I do and, you know, the journey I've kind of had, I've had a pretty, I guess they call it a squiggly career, <laughs> reading more about you and understanding, you know, your kind of background and what you've done. You're, you're way more eclectic than I am, I think, you know, in terms of actually, you know, running a super fund and now into, you know, Verve Money, what you're embarking on now. But, um, you know, previously, you know your job with the UN I'd love to sort of understand a little bit about that you did some amazing projects and um, you know even before that you kind of ran for politics for a while so you know is it all this kind of conglomerate I guess Christina of all the things that you've done that's brought you to this moment of truly understanding and seeing how you know women change the world in so many ways and unfortunately a lot of women do not take control of their own you know financial wealth um, and that's what you wanted to change and you wanted to really see and educate people I guess as well in that space is that what brought you to here 
Yeah, I actually had somebody last week who described, I guess, a similar squiggly career journey in the most delightful way. And I was like, I'm going to take that. And it was sort of like this bus stop approach. And she was like, look, some people have the whole trip planned out and they know they're going to get on this tram and this bus and then they've got to walk this distance. And she's like, other people just sit at the bus stop and sometimes an interesting bus comes along and they jump on. And so I think I'm sort of more the latter. As am I. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you and I could go and speak at a schools and stuff and educate kids about that other notion of, you know, taking that, you know, de- be dead set about your career. Whereas it's opportunities, I find, things that feel right. And, you know, I, I'm just a, a massive sponge as well. I just want to learn all the time. And so for me, that's kind of led me to opportunities and learning on the job. And, you know, that's kind of, I think, where it's kind of led. But uh, yours is really eclectic, like a real different mix. Yeah. So just I think for anyone that doesn't have the time to jump on my LinkedIn, I'll, I'll do a brief kind of one-on-one. But, yeah, so I started sort of out of uni at, at Deloitte working in financial services, ended up with the UN started off as an economist and ended up just doing the most sort of hardcore humanitarian work that you could do. So I ended up my last end of my career, I was in Syria and the surrounding countries for about six years, supporting refugees, providing cash-based assistance. And isn't one of those projects is like the biggest, how do you describe that again? It's like one of the biggest projects still today. Yeah, it was the largest humanitarian program that had ever happened at the time and the largest um, cash-based one. So um, just to, sort of to understand that for, for people that aren't sort of across the industry, but over the last 20 years, the industry has really gone from giving blankets and water and food to just being like, oh, these people probably know what's best for themselves, so let's give them some cash. Um, and that was the largest cash-based program. And I think just sort of getting a little inkling into the complexities around that is imagine trying to, um, you know, give access to cash to 3 million refugees who some of them never had bank accounts before most of them have lost or many of them have lost their documentation, but um, you're in a conflict setting um, where you've got sort of government government anti-terrorism legislation that if even 10 cents of the money you're giving out happens to get into the hands of ISIS, um, you know, the CEO of your UN agency could be put into jail by that. You've got the FBI actually coming in and interviewing you to make certain that these things aren't happening. So there's real pressure in that regard. You've got the complexities of some of the areas we're operating in, obviously there's like banking facilities aren't operational. So yeah, the challenges of how do you make certain that every beneficiary is who they say they are? How do you ID check them? How do you yeah, make certain that once they have that cash that's distributed, people aren't going to take it from them. You're not making them more vulnerable. So enormous complexities. How do you manage that in a country I was working a lot in in Australia we felt we were really buckling under the pressure of refugees and we had 10,000 refugees arriving by sea imagine being in a country where per day we were getting 10,000 people across the border sometimes so also managing and supporting the government to manage local populations who are sort of now being outnumbered by a number of refugees who are different cultural backgrounds speaking a different language so yeah it was a hugely um, complex task and you were quite young I was really young yeah I was yeah very, very young. and you're heading this up I was under 30 I was about 28 when I first took that role and it was it was supposed to be a, a one month stop stop gap until they found the right person and then it was a two month stop gap and then a three month stop gap and then after six months they thought they'd found the right person and hired him and then 
fire team and we're like, can you actually come back? And I was like, pay me what he was getting paid and I will come back. Therein lies the bus analogy though, Christina, that's feeding. I got off the bus, but then I had to get back up. That's hilarious. It's exactly. going to be in my mind forevermore. And, but I want to draw on, I mean, sorry, because we, we're talking about your history here and we'll come back to that. But just you talking about those experiences and the whole premise of, you know, what this conversation is about is wealth. I mean, my, you know, I've been in the travel industry for years, so I've been to, you know, incredible countries and regions and, you know, where you see the most poorest people in our, you know, our Western society sense, but they're so incredibly happy and healthy and living a full life. It was always not confronting, but just so amazingly enlightening for me to see that when you'd see the most poorest people in Cambodia and these little towns that I would be traveling or working in. And yet they just, you can see they're just beaming. They're so happy in their lives and they have nothing. And so it always taught me a lot about that. But how, what was your experience like in terms of those people and wealth and, you know, I mean, being safe, I guess, is the main kind of thing and healthy. Yeah, it would have been incredibly, to, you know, to sort of experience that. There's some really commonly established research that sort of shows that once you have enough money to meet your basic needs. So in Australia, I mean, some years ago, it was the amount was $70,000 sort of for a family or an individual. But once you have that amount to meet your basic needs, additional money doesn't bring additional happiness. And I think that is something that I've definitely seen. So once people can have their basic needs met, I think other countries and cultures definitely have, have hung on to, you know, the understanding of what brings us joy better than we have in our own Western societies. But I think on the other hand, it's not just about safety and food and shelter. It's also about opportunity for whatever that that looks like. And I think that working in refugee camps, I really saw that where you could see young children were perfectly happy because they were in school, they were running around. Often they thought they were having the best time because, you know, they were living with their families in the same bedroom and had thousands of friends to play with in the camps. But then you suddenly look at the teenagers who, you know, in refugee-based settings, their education goes up to primary school level. So suddenly the teenagers that are sitting around with nothing to do and you realise that, well, basic needs goes beyond food, shelter. We have to be able to progress and we have to be able to be working towards, I guess, a, a freer a freer life for ourselves. So I think I think there's that additional understanding really, really hit me. And I think I think the other thing that's really interesting from living in those countries because the experience that I had, and this really goes back to wealth and how we define wealth, was that when I first started my career, there were no iPhones. And I remember this hilarious story of being in Nepal, actually, in the far mountain areas, being with a guy who was going back to his village and he, he'd bought, um, he had like videos of CDs, uh, like on his phone, he'd, he'd made videos from um, CD movies of like couples like having sex. And he was telling me that um, he's like, women can enjoy having sex. He's like, I've seen it in the movies and I'm bringing the knowledge back to my village. Um, and it was like this extraordinary finding and off he went into the far west mountains of Nepal to spread the good word and I was like, good on you. But I thought it was hilarious. But, you know, that to the end of my career where most of the people in that remote mountain village, I'm sure most families would have had some form of iPhone, still living in extreme poverty with a life expectancy in the late 30s, early 40s, but with access to that. And I think the other thing about wealth that's so interesting is that comparative understanding. And I, I would be really interested to see um, to see how that had impacted because we always, and there's other great economic research on that, we always compare ourselves up. Um, and the amount of people that sort of both people in a couple might be on 160,000 in Australia, but would still consider themselves to be struggling or not doing well. It's because they're always 
comparing themselves to their peers and up. And so I think what's what's interesting and I think changing in a lot of countries that I've been in over the, the period that I was working is that with greater access to technology, people can now see how other people are living in the world. And I think that's created a lot of frustration and, and that, yeah, discontent, um, yeah, I guess. Discontent. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and it's a really interesting way to look at it as well, as you say, because they wouldn't have you know, necessarily been privy to some of those lifestyles or or elements before. Um, so let's now come back to the career and the other kind of, I guess, extreme of, uh, you know, wealth and, um, you know, organisation skills and things. You then decided after, um, I don't know what the timeline is, but then to, you know, have a bit of a shot of putting your hand into politics. So, you know, well, I mean, one, what were you thinking? <laughs> and maybe, you know, with the... Uh, the uh, movement we've had here with all the independence of late, um, you know, which you said to me off air, you might have been uh, about six years ahead of your time, unfortunately, but uh, it would have been wonderful to have you in there. But what was that experience like? And again, bringing in that notion of wealth, you know, seeing how the halls and corridors and how everything works in politics, what was your sort of experience in that regard? Yeah, and I, I think going back to the, the topic, like a big part of living a wealthy life for me, I realised very early on was doing something I felt was meaningful with my time. What brought me back to Australia was really that working for humanitarian organisation at the tail end of conflict to natural disaster, you're, you're almost mopping up messes. And I think for me, being aware that climate change was becoming such a big issue, I wanted to go back to Australia and work at the the other end of it, of, of trying to make things better before, before we kind of get to the end point. And so in a long-winded way, that led me to realise that the sitting senator, um, the Liberal sitting senator where I lived, Zed Cecil Jane Canberra, was one of the most conservative Liberal senators in the House. He'd helped roll Malcolm Turnbull with bringing lumps of coal into Parliament. Also just really not representing Canberra, where I'm from, that's a very, very progressive city. And so I saw that there was a, a window to possibly roll him as a senator. So I actually joined the Greens and ran for the Greens on that a bit disappointingly, but probably for the best for our democracy. But it was the year that they, the Senate voting reforms went through and, and made that election very hard to hard to win. But I am actually delighted that the um, the ex-captain of the, the Wallabies, David Pocock, won that seat at this election. So another amazing climate campaigner. Um, also probably not on my LinkedIn profile, but um, uh, David and I both got arrested at the same coal site. Um, <laughs> before we both went to Parliament. So there were some commonalities in our in our story. Um, and I was really delighted that that somebody that had done so much on the ground coal campaigning um, got got elected. Fabulous. But what an amazing experience though. And is there, you know, something you can take away from that sort of nine months of campaigning and what you learned from that experience? Oh, there's so many, there's so many stories, but I think I think a really key one was that I actually just got better at doing TV interviews. And um, I remember I did some really disaster. This just came one of the first things that came to my mind. But I remember I did some really, really disastrous ones. And one was I'd been watching Larissa Waters, and somehow Larissa Waters, this amazing green senator from Queensland, no matter what she's talking about, she always manages to come across as optimistic. And I remember in my head, I was like, I don't want to come across as one of these angry greenies. I'm going to come across as an optimist. And I was doing a press conference on something to do with changing sexual assault law. <laughs> I was like smiling the entire way through it. And the whole thing ended and the, the woman that was holding Anita was like, what the hell were you doing? You were like almost laughing the whole way through this conference. 
I learned to really um, finesse my sort of serious, not angry, but concerned face. And that, that actually went on to help me in some of the latter interviews I did for the UN when I was working in Iraq. So I think that was one of my big Yeah, learnings. amazing. <laughs> great, great skill to have, absolutely. And uh, live TV freaks me out. My mates that do it well, it, um, yeah, it's one of those hard things. I think you've just uh, got to continually practice it. Um, so from there, you then decided to go into a uh, very sexy industry of which, uh, you know, most people aren't that interested in, especially young people. They're like, oh, why do I have to worry about superannuation for? So uh, what what was the desire to then, uh, you know, build this incredible company with a, a couple of mates, I think, and, um, you know, take it to like one of Australia's, you know, first and preeminent, um, you know, superannuations that focus on, um, you know, where you're, you know, where you're investing and predominantly, you know, really focusing on women. Where did that come from, Christina? Yeah, I think there was a few things that were sort of happening in the background and then I guess the bus arrived at the bus station. So um, I think the few things that were happening in the background was that one, in my career, I'd started working a lot, um, had, had gone sort of a little bit outside of humanitarian work and was doing some amazing microfinance work. And I started realising that, oh, there were these great investment funds across um, Southeast Asia that were investing in women's businesses, providing great returns, supporting local communities. So I was starting to get this concept of, I guess, finance being used for purpose. Um, at the same time, I was working a lot in the women's space. I was seeing the power of women coming together, sharing money stories, helping each other with businesses, personal finance. And then I think also what was happening was that I was suddenly in my 30s and as the kind of token friend that used to work in financial services and had worked as an economist, that being me, I was sort of getting these just bizarre phone calls of anything from I haven't done my tax return for three years, can you help me, to should I buy a house, what shares should I invest in, I'm getting a divorce, where do I start? And, you know, I was really not the personal finance guru by any measure. And I think what, what I was starting to realise was that women particularly just had nowhere to turn to to sort of answer these questions beyond, you know, the Money Smart website if you wanted that kind of I guess a professional support or an input and um, there's so much great research that shows that women are just far less likely to talk about money with their friends than men are and they're actually more likely to talk about sex and money. So on one hand I had this real world experience seeing that you know my friends just didn't, didn't know where to go to for this support and then on the other hand when I'd come back to Australia and, and done this environmental campaigning I'd started volunteering for an organisation called 350.org that was really leading divestment campaigning in Australia. So trying to convince banks and super funds to divest from fossil fuels. But at the time, there was no superannuation fund that didn't invest in fossil fuels. So prior to running to Parliament, I'd actually helped a couple of guys who were getting the first superannuation fund off the ground that didn't invest in, in fossil fuels. It was called Future Super. And I ended up on their board. And that was sort of how I, I came into superannuation. You know, I guess a couple of things were starting to spark in my mind of we've got these ethical funds and we've got these other funds that have ethical products and no one is taking a gender lens into consideration. So they're not investing in tobacco, they're not investing in guns and armaments and fossil fuels, but why are we still investing in companies that are prohibiting women into senior levels of leadership or not bringing good flexible workplace policies? And so there was really just this confluence of factors. And I think after a while, um, my final posting with the UN, I was in Iraq, I was living in a shipping container on a military base with 3,500 peacekeepers. And I think I just got to point to my life where, back to the question of wealth, I had nothing that I valued. Um, I was becoming really disconnected from my family and friends back home. My health was deteriorating. I was living in a constant 
stress environment and I think for me it was the right moment to come home and in terms of what I wanted to do at that point just the concept of needing a financial institution tailored for women every single light bulb was going off um, and so I set out to start Verb Super. Amazing. And I think that, you know, that when you talk about ethical super, I think that's one of the things that even so many people don't even understand. You know, they, they might do little kind of, um, you know, funds where some mates of mine are sort of slowly starting to get their own share portfolios instead of sort of letting someone else manage that. And then they're like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put money into that because I don't fundamentally believe in it and morally, but they have no idea that what their super fund is actually investing in. And I do feel that's a little bit of an issue in Australia because it was always something, you know, from a younger age that we sort of had to do and we just had this, you know, kind of fund thing that we didn't really know about and it's like as a 25-year-old you're like, wow, I'm not even going to get access to that money for 40 years, which feels like, a bit, you know, more than multiple lifetimes away <laughs> when you're young. So I think there is an education piece around, you know, people understanding how important super is for them and I think I know that's something you sort of, bang on about about looking after future you even though you know it might be in micro kind of elements but it all compounds over time so it's an amazing you know concept of what you're doing and um, a beautiful notion how um how do people get involved in that is they literally just go to your website you know um find out information about how to become involved as a member for in verve or is there any other kind of protocol stuff there's i guess two options um one is verve super which is a superannuation fund you can just type in verve super and yeah have a look at the the fund decide if it's the right fund for you and the other is verve money which is the investing platform that we're soon launching which is all the great um similar ethical products um and Verve Money is really focused around goals, so supporting people to achieve their financial goals um, and investing to achieve those goals. And so you can also check out Verve Money, just type Verve Money into Google and hopefully you'll be able to find it that way. Beautiful, because that's brand new, is it? That's, yeah, it's that's brand new. To be launched. It's not yet yeah. launched, Amazing. you can sign up to the, the wait list and we'll keep you updated. Oh, fantastic. Really interesting stuff and you've had such a fascinating life. So thank you for chatting to us today. I would like to know if there's one thing that you feel, you know, that you are the most wealthy in, what would it be? I think opportunity, I'll, I'll really recognise my my opportunity. I've had just amazing opportunities and um, I feel like I've grabbed them and taken them, but I have to really acknowledge the privileged life that I've had as well. So it's been a great ride. <laughs> yeah, and I think that uh, there is a part of that is, you know, having this one thing about being, you know, having either creating opportunities or being presented opportunities, but there's definitely another thing about, you know, taking that, you know, notion. I mean, the stuff that you've done is not easy. You know, everything that you talk about, you sort of say it really flippantly and easy, but they're really tough, big decisions to take those jobs and move overseas or, you know, to go into politics, like really big decisions. So you obviously have a, um, a you know, element of a leap of faith and I'm not sure if it's about the bus coming along to this rough stop. I reckon you chase the bus down and jump on it. Oh, my husband would probably agree with you. <laughs> He's sort of like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> and then three months later, I did ask you if you were sure you wanted to do this. <laughs> so he'll laugh when he hears that. Oh, that's fantastic. What a beautiful notion. So just divine to chat to you, Christina. Thanks so much for coming um, and having a chat with me today. Really enjoyed it. Great. Thanks so much. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. 
If you did like it, can I ask a small favor? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com.